0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So thanks to our top tier Patreon subscriber, we now have the second installment in our Star Wars prequel trilogy podcast series. We did um, The Phantom Menace a couple months ago. You'll be able to find it on our website overinvested.com. And on Patreon, we have audio commentary tracks for both of these movies now. So if you want to rewatch them, you can kind of go away, get the audio commentary track and come back after you've rewatched. First movie, Phantom Menace. I fucking love this movie from my childhood. Um, this one came out when we were both kind of in our early teens, I guess. So by this point we were like, oh, this ain't good. Probably the worst of the prequel trilogy. We were kind of bored for a lot of this film, gotta say, because a lot of action sequences. But, um, before we get into the chat, I will give you guys just a reminder of what this film is about, because this is probably one of the Star Wars films where a lot of people have forgotten what happened for good reason. Um, so the actual meaningful plot moments of this film are that, the Jedi and Obi-Wan discover that about like, 10 years ago, a Jedi who never appears on screen um, went to an alien planet called Kamino and like basically bulk ordered a massive Jedi army. <laughs> I- I'm sorry, a massive clone army. So they now have all these clone troops. And in the background, Count Dooku played by Christopher Lee has been raising this droid army, both of which end up kind of serving pop But like one of them is secret. So like pop takes over as the Supreme Chancellor of the Republic and that's kind of the political stuff. And then the personal storyline is Anakin and Padme falling in love. And it is infamously a very, very implausible and poorly executed romance, um, which we will get into in detail because we have a lot of thoughts on this and potential ways it could be improved to be more fun and interesting, which is like, there are many. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, Morgan,
1: it's an experience. This is such a bad film. It's just a bad, it's bad
0: really, movie. It's really boring, which I, I mean, it was like, uh-huh. I feel like there were definitely parts of this where I was like, it's fun, but a lot of just like action sequences that just, just went on and on.
1: It is, Phantom Menace is also a very bad film, but as we were watching it, talking through it's, it, it it's was entertaining. Like, and it's was like entertaining enough, right? <laughs> See, you think that, and that's fine. There's for I personally to <laughs> did not find it thought-provoking in any way, which was also fine. But, and that also had a couple long sequences, like the underwater thing that I had completely forgotten. And then was like, why is this happening? This is going on for so long. And like the climactic thing in that movie also goes on for way too long. And isn't that interesting? But this movie is like half made up of just endless action sequences that have no purpose are really poorly directed and why why yeah I mean I was uh, I was
0: theorizing that like so this film I think that maybe George Lucas's confidence was maybe a bit shaken after the first film because at no point does Lucas ever kind of shy away from his vision for the prequel trilogy which is kind of thematically and creatively very different from the sequels and like there's recently been interviews coming out where he talks about what he wanted to do for the the sequel trilogy to the originals, like the ones that we're currently on. And he was just like, yes, I wanted us to go into this microbial world of the miniature, like spiritual wills that control the forest." And it's like, I love that you have, like, he just has this really confident vision that would just never work. And with these prequels, like he definitely just stuck to what he wanted, which is like, in the end, not necessarily what the audience wanted. But I think the number of action sequences in this film is a response to the, the kind of the criticisms of the Phantom Menace, which is like a, a lot of people were like, there's way too much like confusing trade federation malarkey in this and also like too much kind of comedy jar jar stuff. And in this, we just have oodles of action sequences that actually are not punchy or fun. And the weirdest one is the the droid factory sequence, which was just added after they finished the film. So like a lot of this movie was reshot And with the droid thing, it was like, they just add this extra action sequence, which just doesn't add anything to the story and kind of just makes it long for no reason. Um, But the biggest issue with the reshoots is that Ewan McGregor's beard, (laughs) which I never noticed before. I've seen this film twice before. And once you notice, you cannot go back because in half the scenes or rather in half the shots, because sometimes it changes mid scene, but in half the shots, he has this perfectly lovely, natural human man beard. And then in the <laughs> other half, he has this wispy, glued on fake beard, which is just so noticeable. And it's like, oh, no. Oh, it, it bad.
1: The, the Henry Cavill's mustache, or lack thereof, of the early aughts. This is what's, what's going on there. Yeah. Eh, whew. Everything about really every choice in this film was inadvisable. I would say they just everything was wrong. Every decision they made, they should have done the opposite thing. Except that Ewan McGregor is very fun. Ewan McGregor is lovely. The is.
0: costumes, as we said in the first film, are just yep. delightful, wonderful, marvelous costumes. We certainly, I think, the parts with the romance are morbidly fascinating to watch. It's kind of the opposite, true. the opposite to the action sequences where you just kind of are like, uh, not working for me. Oof, the romance, though.
1: Oh my god! Well, broadly speaking, I would say we'll delve into the romance, yeah, in in just one moment. But the basic problem with this film is that it just has no comprehensible structure that bears any relationship to drama as we understand it in like a normal human sense. So there, the the things that happen are Like, someone's trying to kill Padme, so Anakin takes her off to go into hiding. Obi-Wan tries to figure it out and finds the clone army. Uh, Anakin and Padme fall in love. He goes and tries to rescue rescue his mom, Obi-Wan gets captured, they go to try to save him, they all wind up getting captured, they escape.
0: See, even my plot summary from us watching it ten minutes ago was still bad. (laughs)
1: Right, and then there's, like, political mumbo-jumbo going on with Count Dooku, which leads to, like, people try to kill them, the Jedi come and try to save them. Just an interminable
0: action sequence at the end.
1: Right, like, it's, it's hard to even explain what's going on because it's so incomprehensible. But, like, that's not a plot that really works, and it's certainly not a plot that takes up two and a half hours of screen time. Because basically half of the movie is just Ewan McGregor, bless him, the best part of this film, just like wandering around, asking people questions, just kind of hanging out in, for instance, a library, which I appreciated because I like libraries, but I was like, this isn't really, like, what, <laughs> what's, what's happening? And then these, like, nonsensical romance scenes, and then the action scenes that make no sense not that every action film or certainly every film has to have like a concrete thing that is the end point of the movie that they're all going towards. But I said to you before we started recording that people often criticize Star Wars movies for all being kind of about the same thing, which is they have to blow up the Death Star. Like many of them revolve around that kind of plot, but there's a reason they keep repeating that, which is that it's very easy to understand. It's like a concrete goal that everyone is working together to try to achieve or trying to stop the protagonist from achieving. Yeah, and also and like the, the idea kind of having of, a very like,
0: basic like story structure. It works for so many different genres. Like we don't right. necessarily have a problem with like a romance movie or a Disney princess movie or whatever all having that structure as long as it functions well.
1: Yeah, like basic, you know, hero's journey stuff, it's fine. You just have to execute it correctly. Like tropes work as long as they're good. Whatever. And this doesn't abide by any of that. It's just like weird scenes of things happening and then they go to something else and then there's a fight and it it just doesn't follow any of the rules of dramatic structure at all and not in a way that's like, oh, this is deliberately, you know,
0: I'm surprised by how positive the reviews were because they obviously weren't positive but they were... You know middling, and I feel like that really kind yeah. of maybe it highlights something about like the quality of blockbusters at this point, but it can't do because there were good movies <laughs> like in the early days. like the
1: Lord of the Rings, yeah, like fucking Lord of the Rings, which are masterpieces. Time. But
0: like yeah. it really like people just couldn't bear to like really pan a Star Wars movie. But I think like the obvious thing to compare this to is Jupiter Ascending, which like you know is is meanders on, and like I'm sure our listeners all know our feelings on Jupiter Ascending, but it's like that film is like a bajillion times better than this and was panned. Yes. Um, Yeah. But like when I kind of think about the structure of this film, you know, if I, if I ignore, I guess if I ignore the artistic quality, just (laughs) ignore that part. The (laughs) fact that it is like very flawed execution. The concept of the romance story is potentially interesting to me. Like I would be here for some different type of romance in that block. And honestly one of my favorite like scenes or setups in the entire sequel prequel trilogy is the part where Obi-Wan finds out that the clone army is there because it's such a like holy shit what the fuck's going on moment like it's such a huge like cataclysmic event that like it's hard to wrap your head around and I find that very interesting as like a storytelling idea and I also like the kind of the theme of this behind the scenes machinations creating a dictatorship and in like But like all of the action sequences just ruin that because it's like sucking all of the air out of what should be there. Ironically, the fact that he's trying to like maybe fix an issue or a criticism of the first film, like this is purely me theorizing, but like the fact that like trying to like tone down all the political stuff, like they should have been toning it up because this is the point where like the really important like allegorical meaning of the politics becomes really important at this part of the story. And like all of the politics in the later films, chronologically, are so much more in your face kind of as like just subtext behind the background of it being a dystopian society. Whereas here you have this really powerful story that's about this overly complex political setup where someone has managed to find a way to get all the moving parts to, like, stick in a way that suddenly everyone's like, well, it will be better if there's a dictator, which now feels extremely relevant, even though this was kind of being made in this 9-11 era time. But that is a really interesting story to tell. And, like, especially, like, towards the end, when you get the point where the you see Yoda coming in with all of the clone troops. And, like, I kind of really was appreciating the fact that they, like, don't even comment on that, right? Because, like, when they find the clone troops... Um, when Obi-Wan finds them initially, you're like, wow, what the fuck are they gonna do? Like you don't you don't instinctively think that the Jedi, who we think of in our minds as like the good guys and kind of hippies, are gonna just take this army and be like, we're gonna use it. And then they just do completely thoughtlessly. And like this war goes ahead without it being chosen by the good guys. It's not like we have this battle that we have to fight. It's like everyone is inexorably ended up in this like really fucked up, pointless conflict. And now they're like behind a dictator. By the point of Yoda and and the others like kind of going to try and like save you and McGregor, trying to save Obi Wan and the others, it's like it's just too late by that point. And they're just like trying to play catch up with something they can't possibly achieve. And it's just like it's really interesting. And you really need to like spend far more time exploring that story in a comprehensive way because I guarantee no one watching this film is really paying attention to that very important. Sorry, everyone's just distracted by the fact that we just had to watch Hayden Christensen like gamble around on a giant gerbil for half an hour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the point about the Jedi using the clones, which, as you say, is not commented on, the fact they don't comment on it could work if it were in any way subtextually, exactly, yeah, observed. But it seems like he is not even aware. He meaning George Lucas. No, I think
0: he of, is. It's just not been but visually shown because that's the whole concept is the of this thing, movie, is.
1: <laughs> right? It. I obviously do not know George Lucas's mind, but the movie is so unself-aware in terms of like the actual document itself that it really feels like there's just nothing behind that, and you're like, but these are like slaves who you're just using and then they're dying and what? And there's just, nope, nope, zero. Okay. But
0: you see the Clone Wars TV series is very much his vision. Like it's not like something that was made independent of Lucas. And like a lot of people who are kind of, into the kind of the minutiae of the behind the scenes stuff, which I don't really know as much about, or like the Clone Wars, like the, especially the initial miniseries, like the non CGI animated one is like often described as kind of like, this is one of the kind of purest examples of what Lucas wanted to do with sort of the overarching political narrative. And it's like, that suggests to me that he did, did think about that. And it just like, this film was so incompetently made that it just like, didn't shine through at all. (laughs) Yeah.
1: No, not in any way. And even that scene where Obi Wan goes and finds the clones, like it should feel more,
0: yeah, than it actually
1: does. Because I feel it that way. But kind of
0: like in this film, like this franchise, which has so many moments that are very clearly geared towards both like broad emotional statements and like easily comprehensible moral statements for children, they really do need to like hammer home the meaning of this, because otherwise, like people are not going to be, like, philosophizing about the fact that this is literally a slave army, like you said. No,
1: no. And then there's the romance, which is also interesting. Per Natalie Portman. Per Hayden Christensen, quite frankly. He gives really
0: a way better performance than I was remembering in, like, a lot of aspects of this. It's just, like all the parts where he's meant to be like a, a gross teenage boy, you're like, well done. Great. And then the point where you're supposed to buy him as a romantic lead, and it's like screeching the brakes, like, whoa.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, it really, it resonated with me in a certain way in our modern like, contemporary context. I just kept thinking about like MRA in cell message boards. Yeah. <laughs> and that that man slash child We'll be all over that shit. But Wait, it that's just, it makes not all the, Kylo the Kylo Ren movie stuff so much things. better as well, because it's
0: like the Kylo Ren stuff is like much more like intentional. <laughs> well,
1: this is the thing, is that yes, it is all written on purpose, and he is a little shit, and you know it, and they all know it. Mm. And so it's all kind of worked out. And you can simultaneously feel a degree of empathy for him, and then he does something really bad, and you're like, mm, "No man, yeah. you're the bad guy." And obviously, the whole point of these movies is that you're leading up to Anakin being Darth Vader, but like, and there are a couple scenes in this where he does something bad, and you're like, "Oh, he's going to be the bad guy." But all the romance stuff is not in that context. You're clearly just supposed to be like, he loves her so much. It's like he's a fucking creep. Like he is a creepy little teenage boy who is like no and it's all it's also like a like, really
0: cohesive portrayal of like a creepy teenage boy yeah like to the extent where like we know that it's unintentional but it it's so kind of complete that you're like well he just seems like such a great portrayal because like the there's just like so many scenes especially like towards the beginning before they're in love where he will be kind of crossing a line or he will suddenly be kind of the scene where Padme is packing her bags to leave and he's about to kind of take her off to go into hiding. Um, Like when we were recording like the audio commentary, we were kind of talking about this and it's like, it's a really great scene kind of in itself. Like it might be one of the best interpersonal scenes in the movie because you've got this interplay between this like rather immature, very angry kind of reactive teenage boy who's like venting his like thoughts about his like his master and like how he's like oh I'm so much better than this I could be like the most powerful Jedi and it's like very plausible like overconfident slightly douchey teenage boy behavior and she is kind of being like really sort of like she's doing sort of like a certain amount of like emotional labor a bit in a slightly impersonal way while still seeming like empathetic and also kind of keeping him at arm's length and you have that dynamic like a few times like when they get to Naboo He like interrupts her during a meeting and she like puts him down really firmly in a really kind of great, like, here's a lesson on how to behave in the workplace kind of way. And there's loads of like really great little interactions like that, which make it feel like you're setting it up for a story where he essentially gets shut down because they're really at different points in their life and he doesn't deserve her and it just doesn't make sense. And then they just like turn it around and it's like, oh, they're in love now. And she's like passionately attached to him to the point where he can murder an entire family like an entire village including children and she's like oh you poor dear <laughs> and there's no transition point and it's like the film is 2 hours and 20 minutes long you could have spent like a solid
1: 45 minutes more on this romance and you right. did not <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it's just a complete lack of comprehension of women as people right like she's purely just the object yeah of his affection and therefore has to reciprocate. I mean, the parallels between this and the last Jedi, I think are really interesting because you mm-hmm. obviously have in that movie, all the interplay between Kylo Ren and Ray, which is not explicitly romantic, but definitely has a romantic charge. And she, for most of the movie is very find him Finds him very compelling and clearly thinks like, Oh, I can fix him. I can sort of bring him over, which is a standard kind of like, Female behavior, mm-hmm. and then at the end, it's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> That's not going to work at all. And but, like, you understand also the appeal, and that they do have this kind of like when they act in scenes together, it's very compelling because they're yeah. both really good actors, and like, they it works. And in this, it's just like, what? <laughs> like, none of this makes any sense on any level. Why does she find him attractive? There's an, no feasible explanation. And he's been off for 10 years. And then she shows up and is like, I'm still obsessed with you. And I'm going to be a creep. And now we're going to make out. Like that definitely makes sense. And she's this like serious politician. And then as you say, then they're like rolling around in the hay with some giant gerbils. She's like like, really sophisticated. Sure.
0: There's that, yeah, like the gerbil scene where, there was just this tremendous point that we both were like, oh my God, this is so real where he's like, yeah, I just wish that like politicians could find a way to fix this. Like we really need to change the system. It's so dysfunctional. We just need to like get them to go into a room and like discuss things and work things out. And she's like, that is what we do already. And he's like, well, maybe someone (laughs) needs to make them. And she's like, that's a dictatorship. (laughs) And it's just like, it's literally like having a conversation, like at like a high school house party with some like dumbass who's just like, I read something great on Reddit and I figured it out, <laughs> out. You know, it's like someone who's read like a Wikipedia page for like, you know, libertarianism or whatever and it's like, oh god and then despite every single one of those like massive stumbling blocks and huge personal red flags in his part, they then just get married and it's like, it is absolutely the least convincing romance I've ever seen like in a, in a professionally produced film. 100%.
1: He literally, as we discussed while watching the film, murders an entire little village, including women and children, and tells her, and she's like, oh, let's get married. What? What? No! Turn around! Walk away! Get out of that situation! Like, that's not gonna end well for you at all! What the fuck? No. So, like,
0: the alternate options to fix this. I think we have three. The first is the most basic, which is just make it so that like this actually makes sense within like the course of the trilogy. So you have this second film be the point where he genuinely is too immature to be in a relationship with her and she shuts him down, which is how it should be, it feels like it should be for the first two thirds of this movie. And like then in the third film, have it be that he is now mature enough that he can go back and look back and be like, oh, when I was a teenager. I was like not treating her with respect and now I have a sophisticated enough understanding of like humankind that we can interact on like an equal level and that's where the point where they actually fall in love and you can have like a really cool like operatic forbidden romance in the third film and that also would almost make more sense in terms of like pacing because if they have yeah. this really passionate affair and then she has kids it it feels better paced than them being in a long-term relationship like through his early 20s and then her getting pregnant and being like oh great and then obviously dying in childbirth which as many people have discussed, is nonsense. It's like just go to a doctor. Um, but then the other the other <laughs> option here is that he is literally just mind controlling her, which is the best way to just headcanon this while watching it. Because like, if you just assume that halfway through this film he subconsciously starts mind controlling her, done. Her bi- insane behavior starts to make sense, especially her dialogue where she's like, "I've been dying for every moment since I met you," and it's like, "What? <laughs> you have a
1: job." <laughs> Genuinely, I think this is the only way this movie makes sense. Yeah. Like, I swear to God. That is the only way it makes what? sense in canon. Mm-hmm. You, you said that and then I was like, oh, yes. That's the only way I can comprehend what is happening, is that she is not in control of her brain anymore. This is just no no power over her own decision making faculties. That This just idiot teen is now the one pulling the strings. Yeah. Cause Oh boy. But yeah.
0: My my third more fanficky concept for this is like much further off the beaten track than the first two. Obviously the mind control one is best. But that is it is they just have it so that like they kind of wreck on adult Amadala as like just as much of a maniac as him, which would be the most <laughs> innovative concept. <laughs> for this franchise, if they just had it. So it was like, actually, Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker's mom was also like a fucking nutcase. And they have her being like a horny for a murderer like for the second two movies. And it's like, also good, go the Hannibal route. But like, that's a bit extreme for a children's movie. So
1: Well, right. I was saying too, that like, if these were really like adult films, that they could have all kinds of weird dynamics that they just cannot do in a children's movie, which is fine. But then it presents a very difficult situation.
0: I would not actually, suggest this for like this franchise, which I I am completely against. All the people who are like, is it time for Star Wars to have a sex scene? And it's like, no, it's not necessary oh, no. in this film for nine-year-olds. But I do like of as, a, as a thought experiment. I have realized that it would be very fun to just discover that, like, oh, actually, you're the parents that you thought were like a tragic, idyllic romance were actually like a fucking dirtbags,
1: like, <laughs> right. especially from Adal. No. I completely agree. I would not want Star Wars to all of a sudden become that, but he George Lucas like writes himself into a corner where that's basically the only way that it really makes sense is for some alternate scenario where she is like got some weird motivations of her own, yeah, and that's not feasible. And even on like a low level you know, this film is suitable for children type situation, there is just so no sexual anything. No. It's so dead. And it's like, oh, God. Like, it's oof. You you cannot buy it on any level. It's just so bad. It's so bad. And then it's surrounded by this other just, like,
0: crap. It's
1: very unfortunate. Yeah. It
0: did make me think a little bit about like how obviously like a lot of kids, especially boys are like ooh kissing or ooh romance, I don't like it, but I feel like basically almost universally, people do accept and enjoy the romance stories in like Disney cartoons, whereas this seems like the quintessential example of something a child would watch and just be like. I don't understand this. Cause like <laughs> an adult, obviously you're watching it and you're like, as an intellectually speaking, you're like, I don't understand this. But if you're watching this and you're like a kid, you're just gonna be like, why are people falling in love? I'm so alarmed by this concept that like brainwashes you into falling in love with some like a
1: random murderer. <laughs> See, I I wish I could remember watching this as a child. We discussed this a little bit in the last podcast about, Santa uh, Menace. I remember seeing that one, and I don't remember having much of an opinion about it. And I remember well, I watching. I think the Phantom Menace would be more of a cultural event. Exactly. Yes, it was absolutely a massive cultural event because that was my first awareness of Star Wars as a thing. Because my parents didn't—I mean, they'd seen them, but they weren't Star Wars people. Um, my parents are not nerds in any in any way. They were jocks growing up, so. <laughs> um, And then I remember going to the last one because, as we have discussed, that was my first memory of really seeing a movie and, like, my critical faculties kicking in, being like, what the fuck? That was garbage, right? And this one, I know that I saw it, and I remember seeing part of it, like, on TV once or something also, but I genuinely have no memory of consuming it in a theater which I know that I did. So it clearly just in one ear out the other, no impression whatsoever. I remember thinking that um, her midriff shirt was stupid. That was my one, my one qualm. When,
0: as we like, realize while we were watching that, it's actually the best action scene in the movie by far. <laughs> yeah. Cause there's actually, they get to do some imaginative and cool stuff instead of it being like an interminable chase scene. <laughs>
1: But the midriff thing is still stupid. I stand by oh, my. Oh, I
0: mean, you know, I'm not gonna defend the midriff thing. It is objectively <laughs> silly that her shirt just gets like torn off, and it's like, okay, buddy.
1: <laughs> sure. I would just love to know what she was thinking about all of it because more so in this one and the last one, which makes sense. Yeah, given she's the older. Romance and that she's older. Some of the costumes that she has are really cool um and that the new queen when we see the new queen once i think and she's wearing a totally awesome Mm. costume and headdress whatever and then sometimes they just put her in something where you think really well the point that really makes your skin literally crawl is when she's wearing this like
0: backless gown and then that's the point where like he kind of gives her the speech where it's like I hate sand. It's not soft like you, which is like an infamous, <laughs> terrible line of dialogue yes! from this film. And then he like just sort of reaches forward and touches her bare back, and it's like that's the point where it's like just the, just the instinct of every adult woman who's watching this is just gonna be like, no, ugh, ugh. <laughs> no,
1: God. Well, you just think like so many actresses have given interviews now. In I feel like in the past couple of years, not even since all the Me Too stuff has happened, although it's definitely come up, but, like, before that was hitting, this had started becoming a talking point about the sort of demeaning conversations and, like, about costumes yeah. they're forced to wear in movies and well, like, I the think negotiations the kind of around that. The infamous one right? for like, Star
0: Wars is Carrie Fisher being told by George oh, Lucas they don't wear bras in space, so she has to go bra into right. the white dress in the first movie. And it's like, she was 19 or something. Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's just disgusting. And, I, I don't know, it's something I think about a lot now watching movies that people don't generally, I think, because why would you? But, the number of shots in movies generally where, you know, the the shirt's just a little more low cut than it necessarily needs to be or whatever. And that like actresses, they all fucking hate it, right? Like you would hate it too. It's just awful. And in this, like the, the number of scenes where like, she just happens to be showing her midriff or like her boobs are really pushed up and they're showing a lot of them in a way that's completely unnecessary for anything. And I just thought, oh my God. like <laughs> why why are we doing this we all know yeah we know the answer like it's just kind of gross yet
0: another thing taking in the plus column for um for the last jedi because it's like in this one it's like there's no attempt visually or spiritually to make Anakin attractive. Like, they don't even consider that no. as an idea, which is obviously <laughs> one of the key elements that makes it that makes the whole romance an issue. But it's like, just the sheer misunderstanding of how romance works, which isn't an, un- an uncommon problem because, like, I fucking love romance, as I'm sure it's very transparent to anyone who knows me. But like the idea of not necessarily making a a romance movie, but having a movie with like a significant love story and the number of times where they don't realize that you have to like make an argument for the man to be attractive. And also it's it's, like most people who are going to a film that's like about romance are people who are like, I'd quite like to like find a man attractive in some capacity, even if you're like not attracted to men. Yes. And it's like, you don't have to have, like, some kind of, like, magical, like, phantom thread alchemy going on. You just have to, like, oh, maybe she likes the fact that he's a decent person. Or, like, maybe he's got, like, some kind of, like, sexual wiles. None of this. None of this. He's like a repulsive teenage creep murderer (laughs) with a weird haircut. And he's always wearing 14 layers of leather robes.
1: Yeah, it's 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 impressive the degree to which he is unappealing on literally every level except as i said in the commentary track like hayden christensen has quite a nice face but even like he's so young even that it's just like no i mean she's very young too of course but like was because he no like yes exactly he he acts so young that then it accentuates the youngness of his face and that you're just like you are a child you are an obnoxious child get out (laughs) leave well, yeah great stuff <laughs> oh dear do we have anything else to to discuss um, about this high quality film
0: yeah I feel like I mean we can just t- touch briefly on the the CGI stuff yes, which I don't to want sure. to hammer home too much because like I think that sometimes people do go overboard in criticizing CGI in general and in the prequels in particular because like these films did make a lot of technological strides and also it's like sometimes the industry has to go through some mistakes and do things that look dated in order to get ahead. But at the same time, this film looks a lot worse than Phantom Menace and it's because not just like using CGI elements, which is an issue because they do look clunky now, but like all of the green screen, like the backgrounds are bad.
1: Astonishing. There was a moment where I said, it looks like they're walking on a treadmill in front of a green screen and they probably were it's so obvious. It looks really bad. It's interesting there's been a lot of conversation this week around The Incredibles, which I have not seen since it came out. I would like to rewatch it because I would like to see the new film which is getting very good reviews. And that the original movie is very beloved by critics. I don't really have an opinion on it because the last time I saw it I was very young. But Yeah, I mean I enjoyed very it when well, I saw it, you know. Well right, it's very well regarded, but people, have all these critics have been rewatching it in preparation for the new film, and basically the universal line on this has been, holy shit, this movie is so fucking ugly, because it was made with digital technology in the mid bots right? And we have progressed considerably since then. And the conversation that kind of has been happening that I've been thinking about a lot is you're totally right that it is slightly unfair to be like, oh, this looks so bad because technology has advanced a lot, but at what point does that stop? Right? Like technology is going to continue advancing and all these films are going to, like, we're going to keep making these movies. And so they're just going to keep looking bad as we continue to move forward. Like there's no end point. I mean, I think
0: the current Star Wars movies, they're at the point where like the CGI is, you cannot see it. And there's a huge amount of CGI, but it's at the point where it's like visually indistinguishable. So like, that's,
1: good but also it's like they
0: as you were saying like they use so much more practical effects than these films do and it's like you need practical effects because you need stuff for the actors to interact with
1: right where yeah and those are great examples of movies that have figured out how to balance like i'm not against visual like digital visual effects or cgi This, this is now a tool that we have and it's not a bad thing but the new star wars movies i think have done a really good job of using that stuff when it's you know useful to them And then also having some physical stuff for the actors to engage with. And so the viewer actually can see something that is a physical object. Um, And then a lot of other big blockbuster films, including most Marvel movies have, and certainly DC films have not gotten with the program on that at all. And they just don't look good. And I was thinking about this with, um, Ocean's 8, that has a lot of the face uh too. And I have to assume that at a certain point, Hollywood is going to get over that to a certain extent, or at least get better at it. And it just looks so bad. And it's going to look even worse in like 20 years when we've moved on a little bit. And you just think, you know, just chill out. Yeah, <laughs> just I mean, I chill think, out I out think all.
0: part of it may literally be like, um, like a personnel issue, right? Because making physical sets and models is like an extremely technical skilled job, you know? Yes. Um, and there's a limited number of people who can do that. And at the moment, like for the past like five to ten years, there's been a really big uptick in the number of this type of film that's being made, like especially superhero films, that kind of thing. And you can outsource a lot of CGI stuff overseas. Get there's a lot of studios that are doing this work. Whereas the practical effects, the reason why Star Wars is so good is because they've got Industrial Light and Magic and Lucasfilm. And they Not only are incredibly experienced people who've spent their entire careers literally in this business, but they also have like an encyclopedic knowledge of Star Wars and the aesthetic they need to create. And that's the reason why it looks so good. And it's kind of the reason why, like similarly, the Lord of the Rings movies, which we've compared a couple of times to this, happening at the same time, they still look incredible. They have a lot of CGI, which like I'm sure many nerds of our generation watched a fuck ton of special features on those DVD box sets. And they go into like how they recreated the the orc armies and shit. But they also had all of these weta workshops, like physical stuff, and weta workshops are now like working on all these other movies as a result of that, because they and kind of Guillermo del Toro are the people who like understand what's up in terms of making a little gargoyle instead of having a CGI Muppet that no one can touch in physical reality.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, all those movies are going to age so much better than something like this. And I, I'm not, like, I understand that this technology had, like, really boomed and was available. And I could completely understand that it would be really exciting if you were a filmmaker to be like, oh my God, we have all this green screen stuff. Like, we could do so much with it. Well, there's a lot and of overlap you-
0: between James Cameron and George Lucas. Yeah. Because they're both, like, yeah. obsessed with this technology and I think there's like a disconnect between their interest, which is like completely valid as a personal interest and like the actual emotional response of the audience, which is like, what am I looking at?
1: (laughs) Right. Um, But I think there is a degree to which people, and like, obviously, you know, people love animated films, so it's not like people only like to watch real humans or whatever, but people like to watch things that, feel like they really exist. And this one so does not at any point seem like something that's actually happening. Like the scene where um, Ewan McGregor goes and finds out about all the clones... The aliens he's talking to and the space in which they exist is so intangible. Well, the that it's background really hard when they're to... walking along
0: this like windowed corridor, the background where they have all the fetuses is moving at the wrong speed, so it looks like they're walking on one of those airport <sighs> conveyor belts. Yeah. But it turns out like they haven't figured out whatever like the software is to make sure that the like non-existent camera is moving at the right thing for it to look like a kind of a dolly shot. It doesn't work, so it's like it feels subconsciously confusing.
1: Yes. Yeah. And like the lighting is really weird. It's just the whole thing is really a mess. I think a lot about um, Band of Brothers, which was one of the last things made with almost entirely practical effects. Like they built and then blew up buildings in the UK to stimulate like the Second World War. And then there are like five shots of D-Day that are CGI because they had to show like all the planes and the people jumping out of the planes and their parachutes and they look so bad (laughs) like like so terrible it's like oh yes we have the two poles of like things that you could do and that's not like building a bunch of buildings and then blowing them up is necessarily like a practical thing to do but you really do see how convincing it is when you do the thing and like what the solution is I'm not entirely sure but I'm pretty sure it is not what they did in this film which has not aged uh, yeah well and I, I guess still. like
0: I don't I do I don't want to seem like one of these people who's like I hate CGI because obviously we're not as we said but also it's like there is this balance of kind of suspension of disbelief and my willingness to suspend disbelief with Star Wars is high you know because like Morgan's fucking saying they're like cackling well I'm like there's so much deep political meaning in the Star Wars because right. we've all like Jar Jar is fucking like jabbering around in the, in the foreground but it's like you know I, I'm happy to ignore some visual issues like anyone who likes the initial like Russell T Davies era of Doctor Who, it looks very clunky and did almost immediately, but it like doesn't matter. But with this, it's like,
1: it's so overwhelming, like the sheer volume. Last note, I would say the kind of difference actually between the Russell, those old Russell T Davies episodes, which I totally love also, the, those seasons of that show are so good and way better than the much more expensive yeah. Moffat Like the, the HD Moffat. <laughs> oh, is that they're really cheap. And this is really expensive. Yeah. And when you've spent this much money on something and it looks bad, your sort of hindbrain knows and it it doesn't feel right or good. Yeah. Whereas something that is good and pure and looks kind of shitty because you know that it didn't cost anything, I think you're willing to be like, that CGI is one hundred percent unconvincing and fake, but like whatever. I'm here. It I'm here to happily matter. buy it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas this, like, they clearly spent a gajillion dollars on it, and it still looks like a piece of trash. And so you're like, mm, yeah, I don't know. And there's that. definitely.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow came out in the mid two thousands, which is the first film that essentially used one hundred percent background CGI sets. Like it was like all green screened. It's um, it's like a kind of a full vintage um adventure movie which really enjoyable um, starring Jude Law yeah. and Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie really fun movie but like that film and kind of sin city and that sort of thing it's weird to think that they came out at the same time as this because it's like i guess partly that's because like it's intentionally false looking um but there are films of this era that look better so forever a mystery i guess
1: yes indeed yeah well we'll be back <laughs> at some point yeah. Next I think I think
0: the third film is going to be a lot better than this one. Like, I, I the third one is the best, qualitatively, of the three. And I think yeah. this one is the slowest and most, like, laden down with action scenes. So I think we'll have more yeah. to talk about in the next one.
1: <laughs> yes. But that will be coming to you. So get ready, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening along to this. And if you watched the film with our commentary for doing that, if you have not, again, you can find that on Patreon by subscribing. Uh, thank you for, to all of our subscribers for supporting us and particularly to Eleanor for sponsoring this episode. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Everyone else can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com on Twitter at overinvestedpod and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.